Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, July the 17th, 2023. Last week, I was up um, in Hyde Park, uh, New York, upstate New York, uh, of course, uh, a small town uh, eternally associated with FDR uh, at the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library. I interviewed uh, the new director there, William Harris, about a show they're doing at the library, Black American Civil Rights and the Roosevelt's 1932 to 1962. I'm actually going to run the interview with Harris, I think, later today. And in our conversation, uh, Harris explained that FDR's record on race and racism and addressing the complexity, to, to use a word, of the, of the Democratic Party with its liberal, I guess, northern wing and its um, reactionary southern wing on race uh, was pretty complicated. And the best one can say about FDR was his Machiavellian ability to do business, even with Eleanor, we discussed um, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, Harris noted that Eleanor wasn't always quite as liberal on race as we now associate her. Uh, and when FDR died, of course, in 1945, he was replaced by the vice president, Harry Truman, who also has a very patchy, controversial record on race. I know when his mother came to stay with him in the White House, she refused to sleep in the bed there because she believed that uh, Abraham Lincoln might have stayed there. Mm -hmm. Truman's family was very much uh, a Confederate family. Um, but of course, the list leads up to the 1948 um, Democratic National Convention that took place 75 years ago uh, um, in July 1948. Uh, it was an enormously important uh, convention, not because uh, Truman was renominated, because of a huge uh, controversy about civil rights and the position of the party on civil rights at the uh, 1948 convention, which was held in Philadelphia. A young, fairly unknown uh, Democrat, Hubert Humphrey, who at that point was the mayor of Minneapolis, made a speech urging the Democratic Party, in his language, uh, to get out of the shadow of states' rights and walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. And to mark that anniversary, we have a new book, Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hu Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights, written by my guest, uh, very distinguished American journalist, academic and writer, Samuel G. Friedman. Uh, Samuel is joining us from Washington, D.C., where he will be speaking tonight at the excellent Politics and Prose Bookshop. Uh, Samuel, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Uh, I know you're dividing your time between New York, where you teach at Columbia, and Minneapolis because you did so much research. How did you choose? You've, you've written... Uh, a lot of books, a lot of prize-winning books. This was obviously a major endeavor. Um, what, what, what encouraged you to write this book? Well, Andrew, for one, 
a number of my books have focused on aspects of civil rights or race. So that's kind of a force field of subject matter that I keep coming back to because it fascinates me because it's so essential to understanding the American experience. And beyond that, I've been looking for the last 10 or 12 years for a book that would be set right after World War II, because I felt that there was this kind of conventional wisdom, which as is so often the case, isn't actually wise, that somehow America went from the end of World War II to the mid fifties and everybody's mowing their lawn in Levittown. And there were two problems with that supposition. One is that the fifties in ways both good and bad were a lot more turbulent than the stereotype would have us believe. You had the Red Scare, you also had a lot of civil rights activity led by Dr. King. The other problem with the supposition is that you still have to account for this period of time right after World War II. It didn't go straight to any version of, of the 1950s. And a friend of mine, a historian named Julian Zelzer, had written a book about Lyndon Johnson with Humphrey's help. Yeah, Ju Julian has been on the show a couple of times. He Great. also just uh, edited the book on uh, Trump. Right, and terrific book called Myth America. He's, he's prolific and amazing. And Julian had, you know, was talking about the great society legislation Johnson and Humphrey pushed through. And my wife, who lived in Minneapolis for many years, like a good former Minnesotan, asked Julian, what about Humphrey? And in the course of answering the question, Julian mentioned Humphrey's civil rights speech in 1948 as this underappreciated, if not altogether unknown, landmark in civil rights history. I knew about that speech, but as soon as Julian said it, the proverbial light bulb went off, and I thought, that's the book. It has race, civil rights. It's set in this period right after the end of World War II that I've been wanting to inhabit with my work. And the next day, I just did one thing, which was email Julian and ask, are you writing a book about Humphrey in that speech? Because I never would since we're friends. And Julian was like, no, I'm writing this book about Newt Gingrich and Jim Wright. Go to it. And so I did. James Taub is writing a book about Humphrey as well, isn't he? Yeah, he's. I think his book is coming out sometime in the next year. Yeah, it's not on the on the speech itself. So it's interesting that Humphrey is is re-entering a public consciousness. Um, before we get to Humphrey, uh, Sam, it, it's really very confusing for outsiders, people who aren't rooted in American history, to make sense of the Democratic Party. How did it become such an odd thing? this mix of Northern liberals and Southern racists? How would you explain that? How did it hold together? That's a great question. I'm happy to fill it in. The Democratic Party in the 20th century has been filled with contradictions that were difficult to resolve. You can start with the period of the so-called you know, prairie populists, people like William Jennings Bryan, even in the late 1800s, who were very progressive on issues of income, but were nativists, racist, anti-Semites, and for whom the Democratic Party was meant to try to keep out all the immigrant Catholics and Jews coming in. Yeah, it's and, interesting. We talked about uh, Brian um, as this odd character. He was against prohibition, uh, not against prohibition. He was a prohibitionist, saw alcohol as a great evil. He was a populist who back then was a leftist or seen on the left, a progressive, mm -hmm. but today probably would be seen as a, as a right-wing populist. I think you make a really good point because populism is this very mercurial um, political idea. And although Bryant never put it quite this crudely, what right-wing populists have done is, and Trump is, is a good example, is 
say we want to keep aspects of the social safety net, even potentially expand it, as long as it's only for our people. And those people in Brian's mind and in Trump's are overwhelmingly white Christians and Christian in Brian's time meeting Protestants, not Catholics. Yeah, and Brian himself, like Truman, had a, a pretty spotty, controversial record on race. So sorry to interrupt. So back to the Democratic No, party. no. Well, so the first effort is what Al Smith, when he's the first Catholic running for president on a major party ticket in 1928 does, he brings in large numbers urban Jews and Catholics immigrants from Ireland, from Italy, from Poland, from the Pale of Settlement um, into the Democratic coalition. And that really sets the table for FDR in 1932. So by the time FDR... Sorry to jump in uh, again, uh, Sam. I mean, it's obviously not possible to talk about the Democrats without mentioning the Republicans. The Those immigrants, as you call them, were they in, in the 20s, were they voting for uh, Harding or Coolidge? Uh, what, what did the Republicans do to lose the support of immigrants and indeed of blacks? Well, I think the Republicans with immigrants didn't do anything particularly um, to welcome them. It, what you had was actually... a in big cities, urban Catholics in particular would vote for a Democratic ticket for these often corrupt but good at delivering services, big city machines. Um, I can't tell you exactly how the vote went nationally, but probably passively it was split, if not slightly skewing to Republicans. There were a large number of Jewish immigrant voters who voted for the Socialist Party who didn't even vote for the Democratic Party. How loath was Smith as this, you know, the quintessential New York machine politician and a Catholic, as you note. How how hated was he by the Southern Democrats? Well, some of us remember the bigotry that was loved against Barack when he was running as the first African-American major party candidate in 2008. I would argue that actually as horrible as that was, Al Smith faced even worse bigotry. Al, the kinds of attitudes that were out there about Al Smith were the Pope is going to run America. The liquor interests are going to run America. There was literally a photograph of the Holland Tunnel entrance into New York from New Jersey that was put out in whatever the social media equivalent was of his time, probably tabloid newspapers, saying this is the mouth of the tunnel that leads from Rome to America, through which the Pope or the Pope's representatives are going to come to tell Al Smith what to do. And... Um, Rather than gutter journalism, uh, Sam, we should probably call it tunnel journalism. <laughs> you should you should trademark that phrase. And that's the kind of thing that Smith was up against. And, of course, the Ku Klux Klan in the right. 1920s, of course, it was anti-Black and, of course, it was anti-Semitic. But in some ways, its most virulent strain was leveled against Catholics. Yeah. And so you had the Klan protesting, uh, you know, and inveighing against um Al Smith and the Klan had been prior to Smith's nomination in 1928, part and parcel of the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's ironic and, that today the Catholic, I mean, can't speak on behalf uh, as, of all Catholics, but certainly the, 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 the many Catholics have shifted to the right. So, so Smith loses. And of course, then you have the Hoover presidency and he's defeated by FDR after the Great Depression. How, how do you make sense of FDI? I, I noted in the beginning uh, that FDR's record on race is very controversial and also rich and interesting. How, how do you make sense of him in the context of all this? Was he as Machiavellian as, 
as 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 he's often thought of when it especially in terms of keeping the party together holding it together well whether you want to call it machiavellian or ultra pragmatic or as i would say making a devil's bargain fdr is assembling this completely unlikely coalition the coalition has some of the elements you'd expect organized labor the aforementioned urban jews and catholics liberal college educated intellectuals and the one anomaly is the southern wing of the democratic party and just like now we associate white supremacy and racial intolerance in the south with the republican party and in parts of the north too back in this period of time it was the democratic party in the south that was the party of segregation and white supremacy and fdr made this cynical calculation that in order to win election he needed the electoral votes from the southern states in order to get new deal legislation through congress he needed the support of senators and representatives many of them with a lot of seniority and power from the segregated south and so the deal was that certain new deal programs like social security for instance were written in such a way that they as a matter of fact excluded the majority of working blacks in the south because social security did not cover agricultural right the, uh, i don't know if you've been up to the uh, the library recently but i think you would find this uh, exhibit black american civil rights and the roosevelt's particularly interesting so you had this really surreal situation sam where southern white southern reactionary whites and southern blacks who hated each other in every other sense were voting for the same party and the same president actually not not exactly so because blacks couldn't vote in the south for the most part well as that that there were more they were beginning to vote. i mean wasn't roosevelt also winning more black i guess most of the black roosevelt, votes were in the north right roosevelt won a good share of black votes but those votes were in the north in the south in particular such black vote as existed was inordinately for the Republican Party, which was remembered as the party of Lincoln, the party of emancipation. But in every Southern state, there was terrorism as well as legal impediments of the most ridiculous concocted sort that kept the lion's share of, of eligible blacks from even registering, much less showing up to vote. We've done so, a lot of shows actually on the, the politics of African-Americans in the 1930s. Um, what, there must have been very passionate debates within the african-american community about who to vote for i mean if these northern blacks were voting for roosevelt and their relatives in the south were voting the ones that could vote the few that could vote given the jim crow situation were voting for for for, for the republicans it must have resulted in a very interesting kind of debate conversation i'm, I'm sure it did i'm sure those arguments did occur but you have to remember that even post Roosevelt post Truman, if you go into the 1960 presidential election, it was up for grabs on a national basis, whether John F. Kennedy or Richard Nixon was going to win more of the black vote. There is an argument to be made that Nixon had a better record up to that point than JFK did. Um, and so, yeah, we did a show, actually. I'm sorry to keep on interrupting on uh, Jackie all. Robinson and Jackie Robinson and Richard Nixon were actually close friends up until nixon's shift so let's move forward to truman uh we fast forward am i right i mean again correct me if i'm wrong but truman's record on race wasn't great either well truman is actually a lot like lyndon johnson truman comes out of a border state he is um his predecessors precursors in his family line who 
owned enslaved people, who fought for the Confederacy, and he had showed no particular affinity towards civil rights until in the wake of World War II, there were a series of vigilante attacks on returning black veterans. Black veterans, often in uniform, going back to their towns, particularly in the South, to register to vote, or even just to use a public place. And some of them were killed, some of them were injured, and there was this one particularly heinous attack in South Carolina in which a small town police chief beat a newly discharged sergeant named Isaac Woodward so badly that Woodward lost, he was blinded in both eyes. And Woodward then went out on the circuit speaking about what he had endured. He became a national symbol of racism. And that really affected Truman, probably because Woodward was a veteran. And because Truman, like LBJ, in spite of where and how he had been reared, had some reservoir of conscience in him. And in the wake of Woodward's blinding, Truman starts to move forward on civil rights. He appoints a presidential commission. He speaks to the NAACP. He recommends civil rights in the State of the Union uh, speech in 1948. And then he looks down the road and it's like, uh-oh, I have to run for election in November 48. I better back away. I better disavow everything I did. And so Truman himself embodied, in a way, the contradiction of the Democratic Party itself. As One, a border, uh, as, as somebody from the border from... Uh... From, from Kansas and, of course, LGB, uh, LBJ the same. So let's get to the core of the book. Let's get to this um, 1948 Democratic Convention. Tell me a little bit about Hubert Humphrey. Uh, what, what was his life like up until 1948? Well, you would say that Hubert Humphrey was one of the least likely people to become a champion for the rights of blacks and also for Jews as well, because Hubert Humphrey grows up, as George Clinton of P-Funk would say, in a very vanilla place, and he's a very vanilla person. He, you know, for his first 27 years, lives the entirety of his life in white Protestant places, South Dakota, Minneapolis, a little bit of time in Denver to go to pharmacy school. Although by the time he gets his bachelor's degree from the University of Minnesota at age 27, because he had had to drop out for six years to help his family during the Depression. His politics are conventional class-based New Deal politics, and he has shown no particularly affinity for um, issues of racism, issues of anti-Semitism or anti-Catholicism. And then he has a transformational year of his life. He goes to grad school at LSU, Louisiana State in Baton Rouge. He goes there purely because they can give him 400 bucks as a teaching assistant. And he's already married and has a baby, and he needs that 400 bucks. But when he goes to LSU, three incredibly important things happen. One, he's exposed to a Jim Crow society for the first time in his life, where he and his wife Muriel and their daughter Nancy live in Baton Rouge, is a mile and a half or so from the LSU campus. And in between the two, is the biggest black neighborhood in Baton Rouge. So every day going to and from campus, Humphrey is exposed to a black neighborhood. Hum the Humphreys even on as tight a budget as they are, have a black maid who begins to share with them some of her experiences. So Humphrey is just seared by this, not only the standard images we have of segregation, the, se the segregated water fountains, the segregated bathrooms, the segregated waiting rooms, the back of the bus, he sees all that, but he also sees the way a black pedestrian crossing the street and in the mind of white motorists taking too long doing it will get reviled with racial slurs 
and humiliated in public. He sees the way black people in the state capitol building are fearful of getting in an elevator if there are any white people in it. He hears from his housekeeper about the fright in black neighborhoods when the bill collectors come around to intimidate black customers into paying up. And that's one part of what he experiences. The second part, which would be more surprising, is that it's in Baton Rouge, he meets Jewish people for the first time and he gets to know them. And one of his friends on the college debating team, who later becomes a very pro-integration federal judge, Alvin Rubin. Alvin Rubin has six, five, rather five uncles who were trapped in Europe under Nazi control. All of them will ultimately be exterminated. And this is the first experience Humphrey has with the personal side of what we'll come to call the Holocaust, which will also affect him. And then finally in Baton Rouge, Humphrey takes a year long seminar with a professor named Rudolf Eberly. And Eberly is an anti-Nazi, one-eighth Jewish professor who's been thrown out of Germany because he was doing research into how it is that within two or four years, a democratic country could become a dictatorial one. And in the seminar Humphrey takes with him, Eberly is not only sharing his scholarship with the students, with his grad students, but he's also talking about his personal experiences of being thrown out of Germany penniless. And beyond that, he's mapping the experience of Jews in Nazi Germany onto the experiences as he sees them of blacks in the Jim Crow South. So all these experiences at Baton Rouge just provide Humphrey. With I mean, all this is obviously amazing and shocking at the same time, but it couldn't have been that unusual. There must have been other uh, figures, academics, journalists, politicians from the Midwest or the North who would have spent a bit of time in the South and begun to understood this. Was there something unique about Humphrey's experience or was there something unique about him himself? Well, I think it's a combination of what's unique about him and the experience. Well, I think running it to Eberly and making Jewish friends in the South was not to be expected. Being in a Jim Crow society, that would be expected. The thing that makes Humphrey different, Andrew, is this. A lot of Northern liberals would leave an experience like Humphrey had in Baton Rouge, come back over the Mason-Dixon line and say, whew, you know, fortunately, I'm back in the North now where we don't have those problems. Humphrey gets this acute insight, which is the opposite. He realizes that there is such a thing as Northern racism, too. He realizes that as the black idiom has it, there's down south and there's up south. There's the de jure legal segregation of the south and there's the de facto segregation of everyday lived life in the north. And he goes back to Minneapolis suddenly with his eyes open and he now sees things in Minneapolis that he'd been oblivious to. So this is the bright year. sunlight that he's talking about, really. At least he gets the sunlight before he, everyone else. He gets this revelation. He gets this revelation and he begins to act on it. And that makes him so different from even the liberals in Minnesota. With uh, how, how much time did he, before this speech, how involved was he in, um, with, uh, with African-American politicians, particularly in the South? Humphrey didn't have that many involvements with Southern black politicians. There were very few who could stand up without being lynched or at risk of being lynched in this period. We're talking about the 30s and the early 40s. But Humphrey had a life-changing friendship with the black newspaper publisher in Minneapolis, a man named Cecil Newman. 
whose newspaper, by the way, the spokesman is still published to this day by his granddaughter. And Cecil Newman, for years before Humphrey got to town after grad school, had been chronicling police brutality, job discrimination, um, racially slanted coverage in the mostly white daily newspapers in Minneapolis, and on and on and on. He had tried to organize a boycott of the big breweries in the Twin Cities because they wouldn't hire blacks. Not only would management not have them, the labor unions wouldn't have them. And Cecil Newman had been calling BS on all of this for years, but he had no real power to change it. Blacks were like one or two percent of the population in Minneapolis. And then here comes Hubert Humphrey, who really wants to listen, who really wants to learn, who wants to know everything that Cecil Newman has to tell him and who has this great set of political skills to do something about it. What was the, how would you call his political skills? Was he, um, did he have the sort of the human qualities of a Reagan? He had uh, a combination of above the neck and in the gut and heart skills. Above the neck, he had a great mind. He could assimilate information very rapidly and synthesize it. He had a steel trap memory. But he had to operate on the basis of experience and encounters with people. A theory didn't affect Humphrey unless it twigged with what his personal experience had been or the stories he heard from people like the Cecil Newmans of the world or from Maggie, his family's housekeeper in, um, in Baton Rouge or from Alvin Rubin or, or Rudolf Eberly. It was the combination of the two. He was a great orator, but as people who followed him, later would know he was logorrheic. If he was unedited, if he could just go on at length, he'd actually undermine his own best oratory. But in the right setting, he could give a powerful speech. He had an affinity for people that can't be taught. He really did care about people's personal experience. And that idiom about Bill Clinton, which I don't know if it was true of Clinton or not, I feel your pain. Humphrey did feel people's pain. And he reacted on that basis. But he also was very adroit politically. Here's a typical example. When he becomes mayor of Minneapolis, he wants to do two things. He wants to replace the corrupt police chief and the and reform the racist police department. But he has no real oversight over policing in town other than to appoint the police chief. All that power is with the city council. Same thing on fair employment practices. He wants to put through a law you can't discriminate on the basis of race or religion or nationality in employment. He can't do that by himself. The city council has most of that power. So Humphrey raises private money, appoints volunteer commissions on both of these topics, and basically uses them to stimulate a change in public opinion and to begin to develop the language for legislation that will be introduced. So he uses these volunteer committees with private funding that he's created to circumvent a city council that would so Sam, let, let's, let's go back to 1948 he he gives a speech on the third day how did he get to give the speech he was just a he was just a mayor from minneapolis and, and and to what extent um did he obey the rules both formally and informally right. of making the speech. I know that not everyone was happy, of course, about the speech. Well, Humphrey, you're right. He's a kid. He's 37. He's mayor of a middle-sized city. He's only held elective office for three years. But in ways I was just talking about before, he had begun to build a track record on civil rights in Minneapolis. That was starting to get known nationally. And among liberals within the party, particularly a group called the Americans for Democratic Action, Humphrey 
is also known as their best stump speaker. And so what happens at the convention, I'll try to tell it succinctly, there are all these committees, uh, civil rights plank would have to go through, they shoot it down. But one of Humphrey's allies, who's an expert in parliamentary procedure, figures out this back channel, but legal way that Humphrey will be able to make a speech to the whole entire set of delegates, all 1,500 delegates and alternates. And basically, to have a chance to override the rejection of the civil rights plank in committee and to override Harry Truman's own wishes. And that's how Humphrey gets to speak. So on July why 14th, was it? So, I, I tell you, it was a remarkable speech and a remarkably brave speech. But why was it such a big deal? What did it do? The speech got the Democratic Party to fully endorse civil rights for the first time ever. LB, uh, rather, FDR appeased the Southerners with civil rights language that was vague. It left the Southerners able to interpret it as saying every state can make its own rules about race relations. And if we want to have Jim Crow, we're allowed to have Jim Crow. Humphrey directly challenges that. And not just in general ways, in specific ways. The plank says we're going to desegregate the military. We're going to have fair employment practices. Um, we're going to outlaw lynching. These were all the top line civil rights issues of that moment in time. And so when the Democrat, when the delegates vote narrowly but decisively to adopt that plank, the Democratic Party is for the first time embracing civil rights and giving a to-do list of what that agenda is going to be. And that's a gigantic change. First of all, it drives for that election cycle and ultimately forever, the white segregationists out of the Democratic Party. It makes the Democratic Party what we see it as now, a multiracial, interreligious party. The second thing, Humphrey's speech makes Harry Truman run as a civil rights candidate, run, in fact, on Truman's own record, which Truman himself had been trying to backpedal away from. Two weeks after Humphrey gives the speech and the civil rights plank is adopted, Harry Truman desegregates the military and desegregates the federal workforce, two really important landmarks in civil rights history. He wins election in 48 for one reason. He gets a surge of black voters, especially in three swing states. Is that, that a controversy? I mean, is, is this sort of, is this just your opinion that he won the election? I mean, it was a highly no, disputed election, no. a very close election. It was very close, but no, people who did the demographics of the voting right at that time demonstrated by looking at the three states, the, the three swing states that gave Truman his margin, Ohio, Michigan, and California. I believe those are the three. And you could look at what the black vote was for Roosevelt in 44, and you could look at how much it increased for Humphrey in 48, and you could look at what Humphrey, I mean Truman got in 48, and you could look at what Truman's margin of victory was in those three states. And in every single of those three states, Andrew, the margin of victory was provided by one thing the surge in black votes. So, so Humphrey's speech, in your view at least, resulted in, in, in Truman's victory over Dewey. You also suggest that there's conceivably, it also might have averted the possibility of a Thurman, uh, a Strom Thurman presidency. Explain how that might have come. Exactly. About. Well, we're living in both the past and the present simultaneously, aren't we? What was the goal other than having an insurrection um, in, on January 6th? The goal was to throw the decision in the 2020 election 
into the House of Representatives and hope that there there'd be Republican votes to declare Trump the winner. That wasn't an original idea of Trump and his insurrectionists. That was the idea of the so-called Dixiecrats to break away Southern segregationists from the Democratic Party in 1948. Fielding Wright, who came up with the party and Strom Thurmond, its presidential nominee, had the idea that since Truman and Dewey are in a very tight race, if we can have the Dixiecrats carry four or five or six states in the Deep South, then neither Truman or Dewey will have a majority. What happens then, according to the Constitution? The House of Representatives votes. And what would then Truy and D Truman and Dewey both have to do at that point? They'd have to come on bent knee to the Southern representative members and basically give them what they wanted, which was a continuation of Jim Crow, in order to get their votes for either Dewey or Truman then to be elected president. And, you know, had not Humphrey had not Truman done so well in those swing states I mentioned earlier, uh, Thurman's plan would have come true, and he may well have been elected president by the House of Representatives. It's a very interesting narrative, uh, Sam. Um, the book is already getting some great reviews. Uh, one uh, on Kirk has suggested it's a strong step in rehabilitating Humphrey's image as a civil rights activist and practical politician. Why does why does Humphrey need to be rehabilitated? This, this was one of the, uh, the most glorious moments of his life. What happened since to, 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 for the need to rehabilitate uh, Humphrey? In a word, Vietnam. When Humphrey becomes Lyndon Johnson's vice president, he joins Johnson in what's the catastrophic mistake for both of them, which is in the middle of trying to push through this groundbreaking legislation on civil rights and on the social safety net, they escalate the Vietnam War egregiously. And as the war becomes more and more and more unpopular, both of them are pilloried for it. And for Humphrey in particular, whose roots were in the liberal movement, Johnson had often been really distrusted by liberals. Humphrey's reputation among liberals, among his own political community is destroyed by that. And then he narrowly, then he gets the presidential nomination amid the police riot against anti-war protesters and journalists in Chicago of 68, which further taints him. He loses to Nixon. He tries to run again in 72 against George McGovern and looks frenetic and desperate and pathetic doing it. And those were the lasting images of Humphrey. And they were so deeply set in stone in the national memory that they totally supplanted the awareness of what he had done in 1948. If he was so wise, you suggested that he had a sort of innate political wisdom. Why did he make such a profound error on Vietnam? It was a profound error. I think it's a combination of two things. First of all, there's some people who think Humphrey did it purely out of loyalty to Johnson. I disagree with that. And Humphrey himself and I found this in my research years later, was out for a walk with George McGovern after they'd reconciled as friends and said, everyone thinks I did this because of Lyndon. And he tells McGovern, I know it was a mistake, but I did it because I believed in it. I think one reason Humphrey was a bit of a sap for the domino theory is that when he was a young politician in Minnesota, there actually was 
one of the few places in the country, a pretty active communist party with a lot of fellow travelers in Minnesota. And it was involved in an epic battle over the Democrat Farmer Labor Party within the state. And Humphrey overinterpreted from that experience. From that experience, I think he was too credulous, too quick to believe a lot of the Red Scare ideas about the communists wanting to take over, whether it was political parties or, you know, developing nations of the world, post-colonial nations. Although to be fair and to Humphrey, I mean, he wasn't alone. I mean, uh, JFK really entered the war. He was responsible for the Bay of Pigs. So the, it's always e easier in retrospect. What about, finally, um, Sam, the broader political context of the shift in national politics, particularly in the 1960s? You mentioned LBJ, who was quite strong on race. Nixon, of course, who reshaped the Republican Party, and JFK. Mm -hmm. How do you think Humphrey's speech and the shift in the Democratic Party on civil rights, um, how, how was all this manifested in the 1960s, and particularly in Nixon's uh, dog whistle politics within right. the Republican Party? Well, that's the beginning of the party's really enduringly switching places. Nixon, who was we were talking about before, had had a pretty decent record on civil rights, decides in 1968 to run on the so-called Southern strategy, which means not explicitly opposing civil rights legislation the way Barry Goldwater had four years earlier, but kind of winking and nodding and dog whistling about, we're not going to keep moving forward, we're going to slow down things, this isn't going to be a priority. And at the same time, the Democratic Party is really having the fruition of what Humphrey helped set into motion in 1948, because between 48 and the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the national face of the Democratic Party is Adlai Stevenson and then John F. Kennedy. And they're both timid on civil rights. And actually on the Republican side, Eisenhower is timid. They'll only do anything on it when absolutely compelled. And so it takes Kennedy's assassination, Lyndon Johnson becoming president and picking up the civil rights legislation that Kennedy had put in and probably could never have gotten through Congress. And then moving forward on that with Humphrey as his main ally in the Senate and then ultimately as vice president. And that's really the reshaping of the political landscape that we're living with right up to this day. Final question, Sam. It's, um, it's a really important and interesting question. What you mentioned January 6th, what, two final questions. What does this story tell us about the American politics of 2023. And are there equivalent politicians around today, maybe when it comes to gay rights or mm -hmm. uh, gender stuff or other civil rights? Is there any right. equivalent great, to Humphreys today? Great question. I mean, broadly speaking, if I look at you know current people in Congress, the two people who remind me of Humphrey are Cory Booker for this kind of a buoyant politics of joy, as Humphrey called it, and Amy Klobuchar, because she's, you know, literally from Minnesota, the carrier of the Humphrey tradition. And as I've seen, as I've seen living in Minneapolis part of the year, she's great at retail politics and that, you know, politics of feeling it in your gut. And, you know, I think in his way, Pete Buttigieg being, you know, the first um, queer member of the cabinet is a version of a Humphrey-like figure today. The parallel is a sad one, though. When Humphrey won on the civil rights plank in 48, that was a battle between the 
forces of inclusive multiracial democracy and the forces of authoritarianism and white supremacy. And we're living with that exact same battle going on right now. And it just shows that that battle has to be fought repeatedly.